I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. We are, we are exploring this book, this um, undeniably um, weird book, and what we're trying to do is just draw from it some encouragement. The purpose of the, books, the book of the Revelation is twofold. The first purpose is to exalt Christ. The second purpose is to encourage the church. Um, it was written at the end of the first century. For some of you, this is review. For some of you, it may be the first time you hear it. Um, it was written by the Apostle John at the end of the first century uh, during the reign uh, of an emperor named Domitianus. Um, and Domitian had, uh, Domitian had, um, uh, he had made it a, a, not a high priority, but he had, invest, he had vested interest in controlling this new sect of Christians in the region of what is today Turkey, um, just to the east of Greece. Um, there was a large Christian population. There's correspondence back and forth between him and the governor trying to figure out what to do with the Christians. Um, there was a time of persecution. This was not the period that we often see depicted in kind of comic books and movies where l Christians are being thrown to lions and things like that. That actually came much later. Um, but there was a significant level of persecution. Um, the Christians were dying. They were being executed. They were, um, there was, uh, they were under a lot of stress um, and under a lot of pressure uh, and, and in a period of tribulation. And as they were there, the Apostle John, who was there, there we don't, we don't, the word bishop in English doesn't really convey it because we've attached all of these ideas to it. He was their apostle. He was over all the churches. He was the last eyewitness of Jesus. He was their, their teacher. He was their elder. He was the senior guy. Um, and he's probably in his, in his 80s or 90s, and he was put in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is a rock. If you ever you want to Google a picture of the Isle of Patmos, this is where you send people when you want them to die of starvation. It was a mining colony. Um, people lived in caves. The only way to get food and supplies was by ship. It was a terrible, terrible place. And uh, he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled, and Jesus appears to him. That's the, that's the sum of the book of the Revelation. Um, and he sees a series of visions, and these visions serve two purposes. Number one, to exalt Christ, and number two, to encourage the church. These visions are not a timetable of the end of the universe, although they deal with that. But you cannot take the book of the Revelation, just lay it on a table and go, and this is how the world will end. It's a very complex book. Um, it is one of those books that nobody, anybody who claims that they understand everything about this book is lying. There are things about this book that make no sense. We don't understand some of it. There are random numbers thrown in. And everybody goes, oh, this is what this number means. And then somebody else goes, that number can't mean that because of fill in the blank. There's arguments over it all the time. When the, when, uh, yeah, the Apostle Martin Luther, that would have got me in trouble. Um, although John Calvin did say there was only one person alive at his day that he believed was worthy of the title of Apostle, and that was Martin Luther. But anyway, that's my historical brain. When Martin Luther read it, he saw the Roman Catholic Church and all of its corruption under the Borgia and Medici popes. And, and I can share with you why that particular period of the Roman Catholic Church was, was unbelievably corrupt. 
um, during the turn of the 15th century, uh, 15th to 16th century. It was, it was absolutely abysmal. And so he saw the Roman Catholic Church in all of the condemnations and visions in the Apostle, uh, in John's visions. Um, 19th century, uh, 19th century commentators, as they read it, they saw in it something different. They saw kind of this this moment where um, the church would be removed, and and once the church was removed, then a great punishment would drop on the world, um, and they created a whole theology on that. Um, the the missionary movements, um, Hudson Taylor and Adam Judson and those kind of guys, the missionary movements saw this as a a foretelling of the fact that mission work was supposed to go out through all the world and the only way that we could ever see Jesus come and set up his kingdom is if we got missionaries into every possible language and people group in the world and so they went out and they tried to win the world to Christ. People see this book differently all the time. There's all kinds of different perspectives on it and and I've very intentionally um, told you over the last few weeks, I, I, I'm trying to avoid making any kind of definitive statement where there are not definitive statements. Um, there's a lot about this book that is a matter of this is what has come before, this is what is happening now, this is what will happen until at some point down the road the cycle will stop. And the cycle will stop as the kingdom of God is revealed. So that's what's going on here. Now I bring all of that up because when we get back into chapters 13 and 14, there are some crazy visions going on. In chapter, chapters 12 and 13, we, in 13 especially, we have seen two beasts, uh, wild animals. That's the Greek word for it. it. It is an animal that has to be hunted, otherwise it will hunt you. Um, and so these are beasts, and one rises from the sea, and, and that is called the, the beast, and then the other one that rises is called the false prophet. And they create a false religion. There's a false Christ. And we talked about how this is true all the time. There are always false gods and false prophets and false religions. Um, so we got these, these things going on, and then we get into chapter 14. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back to 13 in a second but I want to get to chapter 14 and I want to just dive in and read the first part of chapter 14. Um, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible there are Bibles in, racks, in the racks in front of you. you can grab one of those page number is in the bulletin. Revelation chapter 14 verse 1. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's Jesus. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Excuse me. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. It is these who have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, 
and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his head, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. You join me in prayer. Father, as we have come together to hear from your word, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and direction, your correction, your instruction, your reproof. Lord, that we might know you through our Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. I'm going to get into the depths of this, but there is another song, actually the same song. 144,000 here are singing the new song. If you were here at the beginning of this series, you know that there are two songs being sung in the book of the Revelation. The song that echoes from eternity and the new song. And the new song is the redemption of Christ. Now when I, when I said that, um, I, I, in our minds, I think we hear kind of our western songs. So I want to I give you a clue as to what these kinds of songs sound like. Um, and so uh, I have a recording, and here's the deal. So for some of you, this is going to be like nails on a chalkboard. I just, some of you, your musical preferences. But this is the, the Lord's Prayer sung in Syriac, right, which is an ancient version of Aramaic. Um, and it's being sung um, by... Uh, Iraqi and Syrian refugees, right? And the the cantor, the guy who's going to lead it, um, is a is a uh, uh, he's a archaeo priest. He's a he's a kind of a high ranking priest in in Georgia. But I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, I want you to listen to this and maybe even close your eyes and hear this. I know you're not going to understand the words because I'm not going to teach you Syriac. But you know how um, our father our father who art in heaven how that goes. But I want you to hear what singing would have sounded like for John. This is, this is very much the kind of singing he would have been hearing when he, when he sees his vision. You want to play it?
Yeah. Yeah. That is, what? Dave Nichols could get us through that? Oh. Yeah. Um, but that gives you an idea of when you're talking about singing a new song. You, you, when you read the scriptures and you see, you hear, you see something like it says, and the angels sang, ran around and they sang, holy, holy, holy. You go, well, that's the shortest song ever, right? But r- realize they sang for almost five minutes, and that's just the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They're, they're, they're singing it with intent and connection and vibrance. And, uh, you know, we, we tend to, to want to rush through our worship. Well, this is the voice. That's, that's not exact, but that's very similar probably to the voices and the choirs and the songs that would have been sung in John wrote, John's visions. So that gives you an idea of what he's dealing with. And it also gives you an idea, as you listen to it, right? Did you hear how certain parts of it would start to rise up and suddenly get your attention? Well, that's a very Eastern approach to the way that they're singing, but you can see why John, in the book of the Revelation, sometimes he's looking one direction, and then he starts looking another direction, and then he starts looking another, because the choir, the voices of these visions as these are going on, he doesn't see these visions in silence. They're, they're filled with these kinds of songs, and so he's hearing this. So I just wanted to give you that for a little bit of context. So... The 144,000 are singing a new song, the new song, the song of the new creation. Um, and these, these 144,000 in, in, um, in Revelation chapter 14, if we read the description of them, you'll, you'll notice something about them. Um, it says these, in verse 4, it says they have not defiled um, themselves with earth for, their, for women, for these are virgins. Um, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, that resonates with something that happened with, um, with Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, his disciple, specifically Peter, said to him, he said, where are you going? And Peter said, you can't go, or Jesus said to Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. So this 144,000, they are called... Those who these have been redeemed from mankind, mankind as first fruits. A first fruit is something that is harvested at the beginning. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So if they're being described as following the Lamb wherever He goes, and they're being described as the first fruits, this is describing the martyrs. This 144,000 are those who have died for their faith. They are redeemed from the earth. You see that in verse 2? It says they are redeemed from, or verse 3 at the very end, they have been redeemed from the earth. That does not mean that they were pulled out and made special. It means that they have been redeemed from the earth. They They are the martyrs those who have died for their faith. And that's why they stand aloft from everything else that's going on in chapters 13 and 14. The beasts and the the living things and all the judgments and all this stuff that's going. They're on Mount Zion with the Lamb because they have been redeemed from the earth. 
And after they appear, we get these three angels, and they sing three things. The first one says, fear God. All right? Give him glory. The second one says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the third one says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark, he will be judged as the beast. So we've got these declarations of the reality of the world from these three angels. Number one, God is God and there is no other. Number two, the world system is fallen. It is broken down and it is destroyed. And anyone who chooses to follow that world system rather than follow God who is God, they receive the condemnation that the beast would receive. But then this is followed by a statement that's appeared before in the book of Revelation. It actually appears in chapter 13 and verse 10. And then it appears again here in 14 verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints in chapter 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints in verse 12. What is that all about? Well, think about this. This is written to a church who's being persecuted. And so John receives a vision of those who have died, the first fruits, the redeemed from the earth. And they are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, and they are, they're safe. But we still live in fallen Babylon. The church is still in that world system. It is still a part of that thing. And you have to ask the question, why would God leave His church, His people, the men and women of faith, in a world system that is in direct opposition to Him? That is a good question. Why would He do that? Now, some people got that and they went, well, He just won't. He's going to grab them all, and he's going to pick them all up, and then he's going to smash everybody else to smithereens. Isn't that wonderful? And yet, here's this statement about the endurance of the saints. In fact, there's this very, very interesting statement at the end. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So here are those in the Lord, in the world system, suffering under the burden of fallen Babylon. Why leave them here? Why don't we get some kind of special uber protection when we become Christians? Why aren't we, and, and some people think that this happens, and, and I got news for them, it doesn't. But when you become a Christian, you do not suddenly become exempt from the wear and tear of the world. You are not suddenly happy and, happy and healthy and, and rich, and it doesn't matter how many times you share that thing on Facebook about if you share it, Jesus will give you a million dollars. It's not going to happen. We live in the world system. The world system is in opposition to Christ. It would rather have a false God than a true God. Why are we left here? Why do we go through difficulty? Why do we face challenges? Why are we suffer from diseases? What is the point 
of leaving Christians in this broken world system. There have been an awful lot of Christians who have either been too afraid to ask that question, why are we still here, or have come up with some kind of wacko prosperity gospel reason that they're here. I have heard some people say, well, we are here to rule and to reign over them. That we, we are left behind so that we can rule the world. Why are we left behind? I'm going to paraphrase Jesus. He said, anybody can love your friends. But can you love your enemies? I believe we are here in the world system because God loves people. He doesn't just love you. He doesn't just love you. Oh, it's just me and Jesus. No, it's not. The reason that you still live and breathe on this earth, the reason that we must deal with the privations and destruction and violence and harm and disease of this world is because God loves His enemies. God loves His enemies. And so we don't get some kind of special opt-out of life. We don't get some kind of special ticket to just coast through the world. When I was a kid, we used to sing this song, and it's not a wrong song. I'm not going to say that it's doctrinally incorrect, but, but the song, um, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, the angels beckon me to heaven's open door, and I can't, I can't remember the next line, feel at home in this world anymore. Well, you know what? I may not feel at home in this world, but I'm here in this world because God loves His enemies, those around me, those who run this world system, those who relish their false gods, those who would rather serve themselves than serve the Creator. He still loves them. And we, the church, must endure much. We must lay our lives down, if necessary, to live out the love of our Savior God. And that's why we're here. That's what the church is. That's what its purpose is. We walk among the enemies of God to show them love and grace and peace, knowing that they are not interested, that they would rather receive the mark of the beast, that they would rather destroy what is devoted to them than to submit to Him. And yet that is why we're here. They are why we are still here. God is not in the business of taking his believers and saying, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to stick in a situation where it's going to be awful. They are going to hate every minute of it. And I want to see whether they'll prove that they're really good Christians. That is not God's agenda with you. 
God's agenda with you is that unfortunately, as agents of the gospel, we must endure all that is aligned against us to demonstrate love and peace and hope. What does Jesus say in his most popular sermon? The Sermon on the Mount. We know it's popular because he said it on a mountain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. But what does he talk about when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake? Why are we persecuted? Is it because everybody hates us? No. Because I'll tell you what, there's no surefire way to avoid persecution than to just go along with the crowd. Oh, you're worshiping the emperor? Pouring incense on his altar? No problem. Pour incense on the altar. We Christians are just like you. Oh, you guys are uh, you guys are are into fulfilling all of the desires of the flesh? Great, so am I. I can do that too. We as Christians are supposed to stick out like a sore thumb, not because of our stupidity, our insanity, or our backwardsness, but because we are the new Jerusalem erupting from the ashes of fallen Babylon. Babylon hates it. The world system doesn't want it. They want to persecute us. They want to destroy us. And best of all, they want to get us to compromise and act like we are a part of their thing. But we're not. You do not do not have the privilege or the right to water down your faith just to get along. You do not, you do not have the right to take the name of Jesus Christ and just slap it on whatever works. You do not have that right. The only right we have as followers of Christ is to endure the persecution and reproach of the world like He did. To be identified with Him. To join in the fellowship with Him even to the point of suffering if necessary. Dying if necessary. But we do not have any rights and privileges in this world system. We do not have them. You say, now that I'm a Christian, you know, I thought life would be easier. I got news for you. It isn't. It never will be. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the brokenhearted. We are here because God loves his enemies and we are called to preach the gospel to them to serve them to love them to pour ourselves out to die if necessary that's wildly unpopular it is extraordinarily unpopular to make statements like that. Because we as Christians, we are owed a certain amount of respect in this country, aren't we? No, 
We're not. We are owed nothing by this world system. We are in it. But we are not a part of it. You know it's serious when I take my glasses off. Christianity has been comfortable and easy in America for so long we have forgotten what it means to be the church. If you don't like what's going on at some congregation, now I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about people denying fundamental doctrine or con- going contrary to the scriptures. If you're in a church, okay, well you're not, but if you at some point in your life were in a church that was denying the authority and the power of the scriptures, the supremacy of Christ, you needed to get out of that church as quickly as possible. But it is so easy in our modern American world where people go around, they church shop. People actually use that term. I'm church shopping. I'm looking for a church with the right um, with the right programs for my kids. I'm looking for a church where they're going to make me feel good. I'm looking for a church with a specific style. And this goes both ways. It goes for people. I'm looking for a church with really hip and cool music, man. I want, I want a worship leader with a faux hawk and a funny Hebrew tattoo on his arm. Makes me feel good. Um, and then we go to the other side. I want, I want a church that only sings psalms. They exist. Um... I want a church that only uses this one version of the Bible. I want a church where the women all wear ankle-length dresses and doilies on their heads. They exist. They exist. We're so comfortable, and it's so easy for us to be a Christian. We have no idea what it means. We have no idea what it means. I have no idea what it means. I'm not preaching at you. I'm under the conviction of the scriptures as well. Because here were people who literally had family members and friends being killed by the government for their faith. And Jesus appears to John and says, here's a vision. Endure. In a couple of weeks, we'll all go to the polls. And you will vote for who you will vote for. Somebody asked me, who are you going to vote for? I said, I don't know, Nero or Caligula. I haven't decided. (laughs) It doesn't matter who sits in the White House because it's still part of the fallen world. It doesn't matter who's on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who's in the Senate. Because Babylon has already fallen. It just doesn't know it yet. And you know what? The world might get a little worse. I still believe, I've said this every couple of years, and I'll say it again, I still believe in my lifetime, it will be um, not just negatively treated, but actually actively persecuted to be a true follower of Christ in the United States of America. I believe it will happen. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I see the trajectory, and I do happen to have a master's degree in history, so I know how these things work. I believe that that may happen. 
And people say, oh, pray for revival to save our country. I'm not worried about saving our country. I know what happens to the world system. I know what happens to Babylon. I just want to endure. I want to bear up under the weight of this world system attacking us and still touch one person for Christ. Still see one enemy of Christ switch sides. Still hear the gospel proclaimed, even if it's proclaimed in catacombs and prisons. Endure. That was the message. That was the greatest glory that this church in in the, the churches in Asia Minor could have possibly brought to Jesus was to endure. Continue. Stay strong. Go on. I want to close with this because the capitalization in most of the translations throws this off. In verse 13, the end of verse 13, well, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then there's another line that says, blessed indeed says the Spirit. Now, in your Bible, is that Spirit capitalized? Okay, I think, and that is not inspired of God, the capitalization, and I think that's wrong. I think this is John's spirit, his heart, having seen this vision. John says in his spirit, his spirit unites and says, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The exclamation mark's not in the Greek either. Looking at the world system, when the voice says, blessed are those that die from now on, John goes, yeah, because this is hard. This is a long road. This is difficult to endure because God's not done with his enemies yet. He hasn't given up on them yet. And I look at my friends who are not followers of Christ. And instead of sitting there going, oh, poor, sad slacker who doesn't accept my faith and doesn't get all the privileges of being a Christian. I'm encouraged because no matter what the world system does, God hasn't given up on them yet. Though there are enemies, He still desires to love them through me. And what right do I have to deny Him? What right do I have to say to God, no, you can't love that person through me? Because my life is hard. I'm facing difficulty and challenges. I don't have time to love that person. I don't have the energy to love that person. I don't have have the, I just can't do it. What right do I have to say that? None. 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 Endure. 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 It's going to get worse. Endure. It may come a time when you are challenged to reject the gospel or not be able to work, to lose your children, to lose your life. Endure. Endure. We are called, we say it all the time, we are blessed 
to be a blessing. But do you really believe that? Do you believe that the reason that you're here, not just in this place, but here in this world system, in this age, in this moment on earth, is because God wants to bless other people through you. He wants to share the gospel through you. He wants to raise up men and women of the next generation who will endure when we are passed off the stage through you. Oh, I don't have time for that. That's all we've got time for. That's why we have time. That's what we're called to be. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. And remember that song. That song is sung outward. It's sung to everyone else, not to us. We've seen his face. But they need to hear and they need to see. And so when we sing it, we sing it to the world, not to ourselves. That his face might shine upon them. And how is his face going to shine upon him, upon them? Through you and me. My brothers and sisters, when I say this, this is all of the emotional content that's wrapped up into this statement. When I say to you, go. Go into the world and be the hands and feet of Christ. Speak His words. Hear the pain and the suffering of those around us. And stand for the Gospel. That's what we need. Would you just pray?